We'll try that again. Good morning. It is a joy to be uh, with you this morning. You're all awake now, right? After that. So, um, if you would, just continue to pray for Pastor Doug and his family. They were in Nevada here this weekend for uh, his niece's wedding. And uh, so please just be praying for them. They'll be returning back here uh, towards the middle of this week. But it is uh, my privilege this morning to uh, share the word with you. So would you join me in a word of prayer and then we'll dive into our text today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace and love and mercy. Thank you for the wonderful privilege to come together to worship in your presence corporately. Lord, for you alone are worthy of our praise and our adoration. Lord, we thank you so much for what you accomplished on the cross through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That by trusting in him, Lord, we are called sons and daughters of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and Father, we thank you for the reminder in the scriptures that there is none like you. And even as the writer of Ecclesiastes highlights, you are God in heaven, and we are man on earth. Lord, it is a humbling reality to recognize the truth that you alone are the great and awesome God. And we have the privilege to come before you, to have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, help us to not take that for granted and help us, as Paul writes, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel. That in everything that we do, we would desire for ourselves and our lives to be renewed by your word, that we would not be conformed to the image of this world, but, Lord, that we would pursue and passionately run after you. Lord, thank you for this local body, uh, for the wonderful privilege that has been mine to be able to serve them for many years here. And Lord, we just thank you for the fellowship that we have. Thank you for the opportunity to worship your name, to lift your name on high. And Lord, we think of the different ministries that are going on even now in the fall here. But Lord, we thank you for the Awana ministry. We thank you for the men and women's studies, for the youth group. Thank you for the, just the opportunity to make an impact in the lives of students and adults and children in this community. And Lord, I pray that you would strengthen those that are serving in those roles, that you would give them the wisdom and the strength that they need to share the gospel message, and that we would all be focused upon you and be about making your name known to those around us. Lord, we think of our college students who are off at college right now, some for their first year and some in their second or third year. And Lord, we just pray that you would strengthen them, that you would help them to know that there's a church back here in Herndon that loves them and is supporting them. And Father, I pray that as just a local family here, that we would continue to be able to uplift one another in prayer. Lord, we think of the Walk Through Bethlehem ministry that is coming up as well. And thank you for those that are passionate about that ministry and are willing to serve in that ministry, Lord, and I just pray that you would use that again to declare your gospel, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ as we focus upon his birth and celebrate uh, the, uh, the incarnation of Christ. And Father, again, guide them, direct them, and we pray that you'd bring people out to, to hear the gospel and to see all that you've done and all that you are. Lord, this morning I pray that you would Help us to be humble before you and to come with a a desire to hear from you, that we would have ears that would hear and a a heart that would be willing to respond in obedience. And Lord, I pray that you would help us in whatever way you might lead us this morning as we hear your word. Maybe we're encouraged, maybe we're challenged, maybe we need some conviction by your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond in obedience. And Lord, I ask that you would keep my words from error, that both my thoughts and my words would be clear and that that your people would hear from you and you alone. 
And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever looked at the warning labels on uh, some consumer products. These are actual warning labels on actual consumer products. These are legit. Here's one of them on a cardboard sunshield for a car, right? That's the thing you unfold and stick in front of your windshield to keep the sun from beating into your car. It says this, do not drive with sunshield in place. On a Batman costume, there's an actual warning that says, cape does not enable user to fly. Now that's disappointing. On a portable stroller, it says, caution, remove infant before folding for storage. Now, that one kind of hits close to home because I don't know if you've seen the new strollers, but it's literally a one-button thing that you push, and that stroller just goes, I mean, it just folds up. And I think Isabel will thank me in the years to come for being a little flatter. But on a bottle of hair coloring, it says, do not use as an ice cream topping. On a scooter, warning, this product moves when used. Now... I don't know what it takes to get this kind of label on a, on a consumer product, but it, it has to make you think that someone had to try this, right? Uh, whether it was hair coloring on their ice cream, uh, it, just, it just confounds me. But you think these would be obvious warnings. You think these would be obvious realities when you get a product. But I wonder if there should be some warning labels on other things that maybe need to be obvious. So maybe in our, on our job, there should be a warning. Do not try to build your whole uh, life upon this profession. Or maybe upon, on our children there should be a caution, not able to hold the weight of your life. Or maybe there should be a warning label on seeking financial or moral strength which says, do not attempt to stand firm on this, will not support. You see, what happens is often the things that we seem or we think are firm often prove otherwise. We try to stand on financial security and it takes one Wall Street crisis and the retirements are up in the air. We try and stand on national defense, and we can see moments like 9-11. We try and stand on physical strength, and you get the doctor's report. We try to stand on our job, and you see the pink slip. You try and stand on family togetherness and, and love, and you see an empty nest or a casket. The reality is all of our foundations are vulnerable. All of them are vulnerable. And the question is, is how do we respond when the ground we trusted in proves to not be a firm place to stand? And that's really what the writer of the Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, is dealing with. Because he's writing after the Israelite nation has been exiled and they're returning under King Cyrus' reign. Babylon has already come in and has leveled their cities, laid waste to their land, and shackled their wrists. And the people are coming back into Israel going, Who are we? Everything we once knew has been shaken or has fallen apart. Our national identity, our security, our support, it's gone. And so who are we? And the writer of Chronicles is encouraging them that no matter what you have gone through, when you look back through the history of Israel, God has always been a firm place to stand. He has always proven to be faithful. I invite you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20 with me, and that's where we're going to be today. And, and you might recall back in May, we started looking at Jehoshaphat's life. Uh, we looked at chapter 17, 18, and then in July, we looked at chapter 19. And if you didn't hear those messages, you're, I invite you to, turn, or on, to, to go to our website online, and you can listen to those messages as well as all the recent messages. Um, but we looked at in chapter 17 that Jehoshaphat was a godly man. He was devoted to the ways of God. He was compared to his great-great-great-grandfather, King David, who was the standard of godliness in the nation. 
He was a man who was devoted to the ways of the Lord, and so much so that he even sent teachers out into the nation to teach the people the word of God so that they would not be ignorant of who God is and what he's called them to do. We see that we saw in chapter 17 that God blessed him greatly. He had wealth, he had honor, he had fame, he had a large military, over one million soldiers ready at his call, and God also sent fear upon the neighboring nations that they would not attack the southern kingdom of Judah. However, in chapter 18, he unfortunately took his eyes off of God and put them on wealth and honor, wealth and fame, the two things that most of us struggle with in life, wealth and fame. And he foolishly aligned himself with the northern kingdom's King Ahab, who was horribly wicked. In fact, 1 Kings chapter 16 says that there was no one like Ahab who had aroused the anger of the Lord before him. He was a wicked king, but Jehoshaphat aligns himself with the northern kingdom, foolishly enters into a battle at Ramoth-Gilead where he almost loses his life. And in the end, he cries out to God, and God has mercy upon him. And in chapter 19, he returns back to his kingdom. In chapter 19, verse 2, if you don't mind looking at this verse with me, it says, Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord, and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? He returns, and this man comes out and rebukes him. He says, How dare you help those who hate God? But then he also encourages him in the next verse and says, But there is still some good in you. And we, we noted that in chapter 19, we don't have a prayer or a statement of repentance from Jehoshaphat, but his actions speak very loudly that he turned his ways back to the Lord and followed after God because he himself goes out to the nations to bring them back to the Lord. Then he sends judges out into the nation and says, judge uprightly, stand for truth, do not compromise, do not sway from side to side. But then that brings us to chapter 20. And if you read with me, verse 1, it says, Now it came about after this, that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gedi. This is literally 25 miles away from where Jehoshaphat is. That's easily within reach, within a two-day march. This massive threefold army has come to annihilate the southern kingdom. And the question is, is how will he respond? Will he place his faith in his army? Will he call his soldiers to get ready? Will he say to the northern kingdom, hey, you owe me one? I went to battle with you, now are you going to show up? How is he going to respond? And this is really the decisive moment. My friends, your character will not be defined by who you are before the crisis. It will be defined by who you are in the midst of the crisis. And this is a true test of his faith. What will he do? In times of crisis, mankind really has several possible responses. We can cover it up. We can give up. We can panic. Or we can deny that there's even a problem. It's not the crisis that destroys men, as one author wrote. It's what we do or don't do when the crisis hits But verse 3 reveals his response. Verse 3 says, Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. If you have your outline there from the bulletin, point number one is this. Set yourself to seek the Lord in prayer. 
Set yourself to seek the Lord in prayer. His response to the enemy threat makes absolutely no sense by human standards. Makes no sense by human standards. Like everyone else, he is desperately afraid. This massive army is coming against him. But he doesn't scramble to forge a treaty. He doesn't call his generals right away. He doesn't try and find a new alliance. No, this godly king calls his people to pray. Let's seek the face of God together. I love that he's not paralyzed by his fear. He does acknowledge it, but then he immediately looks to God, and he stands firm in who God is. And then he begins his prayer in verse 6. He says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. I wish I would pray like that. I wish we would pray like that. I wish when we come to pray before God, we need to recognize who he is first and foremost. And that's what Jehoshaphat does. He ascribes sovereign power to God. Even though his insides are melting from the fear that has hit him, he still recognizes, God, you are the ruler of the universe. No one can stand against you. No one can stand against you. In verse 7, then, he recalls God's past faithfulness. He says, did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? Often in our prayers, we need to recognize who Uh, God is, but then also what he has done, because the reality is God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and so if God has been faithful in the past and has provided in the past, guess what? He will be faithful and provide in the present, and he will be faithful and provide in the future. And so by recognizing who he is and what he has done, it gives a strength and a confidence in our prayer life as we lean upon him Then in verses 8 through 9, he recalls how the people of God had built this sanctuary and had dedicated it to him, and they had set themselves to seek his face corporately in prayer at the temple. My friends, there's something to be said about corporate prayer. I know it's easy to say, well, I'll pray at home. But once a month on the fourth Tuesday, we have corporate prayer. And it'd be awesome to see all of you come out. It'd be awesome to gather together. You see, when Jehoshaphat calls the people to pray, he calls every person, man, woman, no matter what their age is, the whole community comes together to pray corporately because there's something to be said about corporate prayer. You see it throughout the the Old Testament. You see it even in the early church. Are we truly about seeking the Lord corporately? Verse 10 and 11, he describes the the issue that they're in with this threefold nation. And then in verse 12, he says this, O our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That is an amazing statement. That is a humble statement. God, we are powerless even though Jehoshaphat might still have several hundred thousand men at his call who would stand and fight for the southern kingdom of Judah, he says, we are powerless because there's nothing we can do without you. And so our eyes are on you. In our prayers, we should learn to not only seek answers to our problems, but to seek God himself. 
It's significant that in verses 6 through 9, it's all about God. It's all about who He is and what He's done. And then verses 10 through 12, yes, it deals with the issue, but it is still true that God is prominent even in the issue. I wonder if you and I were facing uh, imminent annihilation, would we be so God-centered? Would we put our eyes upon Him? I, I hope that we would be. But Jehoshaphat, through the whole prayer, is seeking God Himself. You see, oftentimes, I know in my own life, if a crisis hits, what do I pray? God, get me out of here. Help. Deliver me. How often do we say, God, I just need you? And whether you're going to take me through the crisis or deliver me from the crisis, God, I simply need you. It reminds me of what happens with Daniel's friends in Daniel chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're, you know, forced to worship the idol of the king, and they refuse to. And they say this to the king in, in verse 16. It says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Whether God delivers us from the crisis or provides victory through the crisis, our eyes should be set on Him and Him alone because victory is found in Christ. One author wrote this. I came across this several months ago. It's been on a sticky note on my desk now for many months. It says this, When man works, man works. I know that part's not real profound, right? When man works, man works. But then it says, When man prays, God works. When man works, man works. But when man prays, God works. And I don't know about you, but I would rather have God work through the crisis than me trying to work through it myself. When man prays, God works. And it begs the question, when we pray, do we place our reliance upon God to provide an answer? Do we persist until we get an answer? And when we do get that answer, even if it doesn't make any sense, or even if it isn't the answer we were looking for, are we willing to obey? Are we willing to obey? In response to this prayer, God sends a spirit upon a Levite named uh, Jehaziel who speaks this up. In verse 15, he says, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. If you underline or highlight in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline and highlight that response because that is an awesome response. Jehoshaphat says, we're powerless. God, our eyes are upon you. We're looking to you for an answer. And God responds, fear not. The battle is mine. Take a moment to savor that phrase. You don't need to fight. The battle is the Lord's. I can imagine Jehoshaphat and the people were 
glad to hear that. There's two things that stick out in this prayer. First of all, the phrase, do not fear. I don't know if you know this. I came across this this week here, but there are 365 times in Scripture where it says, do not fear. There is literally one for every day of any given year, do not fear. What an awesome encouragement. Do not fear. Secondly, his phrase where he says, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf is the exact same phrase Moses shares in Exodus chapter 14 when they're approaching the Red Sea. When the Egyptians are hot on their feet coming to, to, to wipe them out and they're faced with the Red Sea in front of him, and Moses says, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. What an encouragement that would be for these people. Stand and see. So the real question is, Jehoshaphat, will you go in your own strength or will you go in God's power? If the battle is yours, you'll probably lose. You're powerless against this threefold nation. But if the battle is the Lord's, you just need to take your position and watch God work. The second response here that we should have in a crisis in your notes should be this. Worship before, during, and after the crisis. Worship before, during, and after the crisis. Jehoshaphat's response to this is seen in verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Is the battle over? Not yet. Has victory been seen? Not yet. But they're worshiping before anything's even happened. Now, they have heard the word of God, right? And you might be saying, well, if I heard the word of God like that, I would bow down and worship too. My friends, we have heard the word of God. It's just in written form. We have heard the word of God. So worship before, during, and after the crisis. This is one of the typical responses of the Israelite nation when they worship is to fall face down. It's a sign of, of we are humbled before you, God. This is all you and not us. In fact, in Leviticus 9, when the, the Levites and the priests begin the, the first opportunity of worship and fire falls down from heaven, the Israelite nation falls face down because God has responded. And it's a sign of worship to God. But at the same time, verse 19, the Levites, from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korahites, stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Now, this is not just a free-spirited group of people that said, hey, let's sing. This is a great moment to sing, right? These guys are trained worshipers. We know this from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 31, where it's written for us. Now, these are those whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord. And then he goes on to mention these tribes, the Kohathites and the Korahites. Their main role in the temple and before the people was to lead them in worship. And so while everyone's bowed down, worshiping God, these men stand up and begin to lead them in song, in praise. The next morning, verse 20, they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Can you imagine this sight? As the army begins to march, the 
The archers aren't in the front. The swordsmen aren't in the front. The spearmen are not in the front. The cavalry is not leading the way. There are not scouts leading the way. Guess who's leading the way? The choir. So choir members, that would be you. Song leaders, instrumentalists, this is you. You're leading the army. And by the way, one of the greatest uh, ways to have a victory in battle is to have the element of surprise. They totally lost that bat at this point. There is no element of surprise when you hear hundreds of thousands of people marching forward, singing, give thanks to the Lord our God for his loving kindness is everlasting. Because the reality is they don't need to fight. They don't need the element of surprise because the battle is God's. He's going to provide the victory. So choir, are are you ready? And this is a bold move. This is a bold move. But when God is in charge, the only response that's proper is bold worship, bold obedience. And I think the writer of First and Second Chronicles is, is showing the point that, yes, God will bring the victory, God will provide the victory, but the means that he uses to provide the victory is worship, is worship. And we'll see that in the next few verses. So as the praise of God ascends, God sends down ambushes. Well, let's read it. Verse 22, it says, When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground. No one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, and valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Now, for just one second, put yourself in the shoes of the Levite. Your king has just placed you in the front of the army, and you're supposed to sing. And here's the reality. God better come through. Or you're simply leading a pep rally for a bunch of dead men walking. You're going to get slaughtered if God does not come through. And so while you're singing, give thanks to the Lord our God for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord our God for his loving kindness is everlasting. You might be thinking, oh Lord, help me in my unbelief. But you're singing and you're marching and you're thinking, it's great. It's great that we heard the same words that Moses used, stand and see the salvation of the Lord. But remember, he was dealing with water, not three massive armies. So God, how are you going to make this happen? And so you're singing, give thanks to the Lord our God for his loving kindness is everlasting. And you turn the corner of that lookout and you look out and all three armies are just laying there and the battle is done. That had to be such a moment of praise. I can imagine Levites just falling to their knees with tears, weeping for joy that, God, you've delivered us. Maybe some shouted, our God is an awesome God. Our God is faithful. And it took three days to collect the spoils off of this army. I don't know too many generals. Well, actually, I don't know any generals personally, but I don't think too many generals say, hey, men, as we're getting ready for battle, make sure you wear your most valuable jewelry. And let's go to battle. But they bring valuables. And for three days, the Israelite nation is stripping these guys of valuables and goods and praising God for an amazing victory. 
an amazing victory. Proverbs 13, verse 22 says, The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. So maybe that's what happened here. God has blessed the nation. You'll notice, though, in verse 22, the victory, the victory was won the moment the people begin singing. Verse 22, it says, And when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes. My friends, it is all about worship. It's always appropriate to worship God. When we face discouragement, when we face distress, the best thing to do is stop and worship. Stop and worship. My friends, we don't sing songs on Sunday morning just because we like to sing. We don't sing songs because the pastors don't want to preach for 60 minutes. We don't sing songs because we're not sure how to transition from announcements to offering to a sermon. They're not just fillers. We worship because God is worthy. And that is the proper response for the people of God. The proper response for the people of God. Of God, The enemy is defeated as soon as we begin to worship. And I do believe that is why in so many churches, there's oftentimes this battle of what style we're going to sing. Because if the enemy can keep us from singing, he's won. It's not about us. Whether it's southern gospel or hymns or praise songs, it's not about us. It's about him. And if the enemy can keep us from singing, guess what? The enemy might be able to get a foothold. And so it's not about style. It's about worship. It's about praising God because he alone is worthy. And praise is all over this story. Praise before they enter battle. Praise during the battle. And then praise is also found after the battle. Because the story is all about God. And not King Jehoshaphat. Not the army of Judah. It's all about God. It's interesting when you look at the original language of, of Hebrew. In verse 20, there's a word used three times. The word aman. It can be translated, put your trust. This is found in verse 20 there when he's speaking to the people. It can be translated, put your trust, or believe, or trust, or you will be established. And so he uses it three times. But it can also be translated, stand firm. He's telling the people, stand firm and you will be established. You will stand firm when you put your trust in the Lord your God. You will succeed when you stand firm in God alone. My friends, what foundation are you standing upon today? Where do you have your faith? What are you leaning upon in life? Verse 26 through 30, it says, Then on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore, they have named that place the valley of Baraka until today. That name could just as easily have been called Death Valley because the nation could have been slaughtered right there. But instead, they call it the valley of Baraka, which means the valley of praise because God is worthy of their worship. Verse 27, Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. 
They came to Jerusalem with harps, lyres, and trumpets to the house of the Lord, and the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. It is all about worship. And they worship afterward. They call it the valley of praise. Why? Because God is worthy. Point number three there in your outline is kind of more of a conclusion. It's simply this. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. There's a columnist that wrote after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. And he wrote about disaster-proofing buildings. This is what he said. In the end, it's hard to avoid comparing Haiti and New Orleans the former sitting atop colliding tectonic plates and the latter sitting below sea level, the comparison elicits an inescapable observation. He says, if we could start from scratch, both in Haiti and New Orleans, we would choose neither location for building a modern city, despite all of our modern construction technology. What he's dealing with is that it's not about how you stand, it's about where you stand. And the text, this text, is telling us to stand in the Lord, to stand in God. My friends, isn't that what the gospel is all about? We stand in his finished work, not our own. Our warrior God has squarely conquered death and sin and our ancient foe. That is the reality we should stand firm in. That's the big battle reality that should play into every little battle we face from day to day. Tim Keller preaches on this theme a lot. He says, if you try to stand firm in your vocation or a relationship or your health and you face a battle there and it is threatened, you will end up flailing about in quicksand anxiety. Or if you lose the job or the relationship, then you've lost everything. You are devastated. This was your identity, your security, your all. Game over. But if you're standing firm in the Lord, then when that battle comes and you lose your job, it will hurt but you still are okay because your identity and security was not there. Your building still stands because it's in Him. You can lose the little battles because the big battle has already been decided, and this is where you are grounded, in Christ. Now, my friends, real quick, I'm not outlining a three-step formula to avoid hardship. Okay, This isn't when you face a crisis... Fall on your knees and pray, worship, and then God will deliver you from every moment. Remember I said earlier, God sometimes delivers us from the hardship, but God also sometimes takes us through the crisis. And we can either have victory from it or victory through it because our identity is in Christ alone and in Him alone. And no matter what we go through, I know many of you have recognized this life is not easy. No matter what we go through, God is always firm. God is always faithful. God doesn't move. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so what are you building your foundation upon? Corrie ten Boom, the uh, survivor of the German concentration camps, she used to have people come to her and say, Corrie, my, what a great faith you have. And she would simply smile and say, no, what a great God I have. Because it's in him and him alone that we should be standing. Let's pray. Father, I don't know what each one is dealing with today. I don't know what difficulty we're all facing, but Lord, you do, and I praise you for that. Lord, I ask that you would help us to stand firm in you, whether you take us through the the, the crisis, which we see men through Scripture go through hard moments. 
Job loses his family and his possessions. Daniel's thrown into the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the furnace. And Jesus is nailed to a cross. But through it all, Lord, there is victory in you. So, Lord, whatever we might be facing today, I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us, that we would find our joy and our peace in you. Lord, help us to lean upon you, to run to you, to seek you, to set our heart and our face upon you in prayer and in worship, because you are our sufficiency. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.